Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode four of Daffy's Roundtable. In today's episode, we're going to be talking all about killifish with an extraordinary fish keeper with over 50 years of fish keeping experience under his belt. He also has experience running a fish room with over 70 tanks. Everybody, please welcome Gary Elson. Awesome. So, Gary, how are you? Thank you for coming on. Thank you. And I'm doing fine. Awesome. So, can you let everybody know, how did you get into fish keeping? And I, I kind of already brushed over it in the intro, but how long have you been keeping fish for? Actually, I got into fish keeping because of a failed insurance salesman. This guy showed up to try to sell life insurance to my parents when I was a kid, and they didn't want the insurance. And when he was leaving, he said, oh, I'm selling a fish tank. You want that? So my parents bought this 10-gallon tank, and I was a little kid. I was eight years old, and I was just completely fascinated. And there had been a real fad for aquariums in the 1950s, 1960s. Awesome. So all kinds of people in the family had really old tanks sort of rotting in their sheds and basements. So they all started giving me tanks. So I started breeding guppies when I was about nine years old. Okay, so you got into... You got into fish first with live bears. First with live bears because they were the um, cheapest, easiest things to get. Sure. And the first egg layer that I bred was zebra daniels. Very cool. Uh, again, because they were easy to get and uh, available where I lived. For sure. And did you use the whole marble on the floor method or did they use? Oh, absolutely. I used the marble method. I, I killed about 99% of them <laughs> changing water. I did all the things wrong. But For sure. Wrong. But that's, that's how you learn, right? Exactly. Awesome. And I think I was kind of a nerdy kid because I was willing to try these things by about 10. So, uh, yeah, it, it just kind of fascinated me right from the get-go. I feel you. I was the exact same way. I had my first aquarium around the same time, and uh, okay. it was guppies for me as well. The, the <laughs> first time seeing that little that little fry was mind blowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, have you seen a shift in fish keeping over the years from people going from like monster tanks to more into like keeping nano tanks or planted tanks, or do you still do you feel like it's it's always been around the same? Um, uh, I've seen. You know, I hate to sound like the old guy here, but I've had fish for over 50 years. Okay. Oh, so, okay. Wow. No, and I think there has been a whole series of enormous shifts. Okay. Um, when I started out, it was community tanks. Everybody had community tanks. And then when the Malawis were discovered, Mbuna, um, there was a craze for Malawi cichlids, which led to a lot of people getting bigger tanks. Uh, then the Tanganyikan cichlids came in. They became all the rage, and everything was hot, hard water, large tanks. Um, I think now we're seeing a shift back to smaller aquariums because of economics. Uh, you know, a lot of people are living in smaller houses than they used to. They're working more. They have less space, more apartments. So, you know, the days when people would go out and buy that six-foot tank and stick it in the living room, um, you know, it's kind of hard when you're younger to buy a house now. Yeah, agreed. Don't want to be moving that six-foot tank every three years when you're looking for a new apartment. And I think that's really affected fish keeping. That 100% makes sense. Yeah, the hobby was dying, in my opinion, and the thing that saved it, there's an incredible 
second wind going on right now with COVID. People are staying at home and all of a sudden, you know, I talked to fish importers and they're saying they can't keep up with demand. Uh, before the pandemic, they were saying, oh, these fish are sitting here and people aren't buying them anymore. So I'm hoping that will continue. I'm hoping that people will have rediscovered something really good here because I think fish keeping is a great thing to do. And, uh, you know, hopefully there's some momentum. And I think that momentum is going to carry us into an interest in smaller fish. That's very interesting. I definitely agree with that. I think as we see people spending or working more online and spending more time at home, they'll possibly get back into fish keeping. And then, like you mentioned, with the smaller tanks, they can just sit on any desk. You don't need to, because again, some apartments do have some um, some weight regulations. You can't mm -hmm. have aquariums bigger than this or any of that as well. So, yeah. 100, I agree with that. No, I mean, I think it reflects like everything. It reflects changes in leisure time. Um, you work a lot more in hours than we used to, so we can have our hobbies a lot more. You know, and I think that we've lost a lot of leisure time. We've lost a lot of our own personal time. And I think that's reflected in all of our hobbies. 100%. That makes sense. Okay. You're going to get people like me who really get into it. So that, you know, at, at times, yeah, at times <laughs> it's been sort of half a job, and at other times it's been just pure pleasure. Right. I've always maintained the interest. So that's actually a good segue into killifish, since killifish do not have any common names, correct? There's a couple that have common names, usually five or six common names for the one species. You, for example, Aphiosemian austral. Okay. Can also be Aphiosemian australe. I don't know I, how to pronounce it. I don't speak Latin. I just. I was going to ask you because I've been pronouncing australe, but okay, <laughs> yes, australe. Well, what I tend to do is I tend to, even though I'm an English speaker, I tend to use the French pronunciations because somehow it seems to me like Latin would probably sound more like French than English. I would agree with that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm just guessing at the pronunciation that kind of worries me sometimes when I see some of the names, uh, exactly what am I saying here? You can look it up. But I mean, in terms of my pronunciation, how am I expressing myself? A hundred percent. Um, so you've got to, I kind of lost my thread there completely. Sorry, we were uh, the common names for the Achilles. Yeah, so you avoid the common names and there's a whole bunch of short uh, short versions. You know, Anothobranchius becomes Anotho. And sometimes people turn that into Northo, which is great for Canadian fish keepers because apparently there's Northobranchius, which is <laughs> right here. Um, you know, people will add things in aphios for aphiosemians, epis for epiplates, but, you know, these are large, large families of fish. Um, if you're going to get interested in killifish, I think one of the first things you have to do is scrap the word killifish. Okay, and why do you say uh, that? Well, it's kind of like saying animal. What are we talking about? Um, there are so many different types of killifish that to throw them all together just doesn't work. Like people will say to me all the time, well, killifish don't live long. Some of them don't. It depends on where they come from, what their natural history is, the whole evolutionary history. You know, we have annual killifish. We have killifish that live for several years. Um, 
We have saltwater killifish, softwater killifish, rainwater killifish. It's an incredibly diverse family of fish. It's very ancient. And there's a lot of debate about how much, um, how much of the diversity is the result of them having been around before the continent split and drifted. Uh, you know, you, you see really close connections between African and South American killifish. Um, so how closely are they related? There's really neat puzzles like that. But it seems to point to a really ancient origin. And because they've got an ancient origin, saying killifish is like saying, I like birds. They have yeah. eggs, don't they? Works for robins but uh, it doesn't work for others. So we can dig ourselves into a hole by being too general. Um, and I think that a lot of what's fascinating about killifish is that you can really enjoy the diversity and you have to respect the diversity. You have to say, well, there's no such thing as a killifish, but wow, there are a lot of killifish. And a lot of species. And a lot of them are really pretty which is what gets us all looking at them in the first place, I think. We all start out looking at really pretty fish, and then we start thinking, oh, but what are they doing? That's really interesting. Right. So yeah. is that what draws you into killifish, or all the different species of killifish? Is it the colors, or was it more of the natural history of them? It's both. It's both. Um, you know, I'd be a liar if I said the colors didn't draw me in. Show me a pretty killifish is like showing me a pretty flower it's a lot more likely to get into the garden. 100%. But uh, at the same time, you, from that, you can start looking at, oh, why does it have those colors? How does it relate to the species close by? And then suddenly, uh, the way my mind works, I'll start thinking, well, you know, this one comes from this part of Gabon, for example, in Africa. And this one's only about 20 kilometers away. I wonder if they look different. And they do. And then you start thinking, well, that's really interesting. At which point you're completely screwed because then you're thinking, well, there's one that's only 50 kilometers away from there. I wonder what it looks like. And you start getting into this idea of trying to figure out, you know, why do all the Achilles from a certain area behave one way and from another area behave differently? Uh, why do some of them spend most of their lives being eggs and others spend uh, years laying eggs and plants? Right. So. And, and and when you're saying that, you're mostly describing differences between annuals and non-annuals? Yeah, to a degree. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Are, are the people that listen to your podcast mainly in North America or... Uh, this is, uh, we're recording this episode before the release of the first episode, so I have no idea where the people are going <laughs> to... Okay. Ho hopefully, hopefully a lot of them are in North America, yes. Okay, because, you know, I can... I'm sitting here in Canada. I'm in Montreal. Okay. I can walk, well, it's two kilometers to the river, and I can catch killifish. Interesting. Uh, I can catch fungulus, which is a Canadian species, well, Canadian North, Northern North American species. It's not the prettiest thing on earth. It's kind of not the ugliest, but, it, you know, it's something you'd overlook, and it's a bait fish for most people. Okay. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to see people putting them on hooks, and I had no idea what they were. 
Um, but then you start thinking, okay, how is this fish adapted to our winter when it has relatives that are dying if they're below 24 degrees? Yeah. Um, it, it's that kind of diversity that gets really interesting. And then, of course, you start looking at where they are and you realize that there are killifish species living in oases in the Middle East, in the middle of the desert. There are. There are, yep. Um, there are killifish species in areas that are really arid, in really tiny bodies of water, uh, probably left behind from before the environment turned into a desert. Turned into a desert. So, you know, they've got very long natural histories, and it's just kind of interesting. I mean, you know, I've seen there's an alphabaranchius that comes from uh, an oasis spring. Um, it's just kind of neat to look at and say, wow, you survived that. And, you know, as a species, you've been there for how many tens of thousands of years? And then slowly probably adapted to hand to be able to handle the higher temperatures and the drier and the longer periods of dryness. And then you as a fish keeper get them in and you start thinking, well, okay, this is from a special circumstance. How do I adapt to it so that I can breed it, keep it going, etc.? So it becomes a question of puzzles as well. Um, and I like the puzzles. I like those little figure it out and try to figure out how to make this work uh, in captivity. I agree with that. I, yeah, that is one of my favorite things about fish keeping too. It's figuring out uh, why is something going wrong or it's the puzzles, 100%. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, you know, it, it's interesting. Quite a few years ago, um, I had an adult ed student come by the house and he was a, uh, professor of philosophy at a European university who was learning English in Montreal. And he saw my fish tanks and he said, you must like to play God. I've heard that one before. You know, if, if you have these fish tanks, oh yeah, you're playing God. And I thought about it because I really, you know, as usual, I didn't have a quick answer when he said it. We only think of our, our quick answers after the person's left, right? Of course, of course. And I think what happens is that if you really want to control things, if you really want to have things be absolutely predictable, if you want to play God, um, this is a rotten hobby because the fish are going to do what the fish are going to do. And they're not going to follow your rules and they're not going to adapt to what you give them. If you're going to be any good at this, you're going to adapt to what they need. You're going to have to look at the fish and you're going to have to say, oh, well, it'd be a lot more interesting to see how it behaves closer to its uh, its native habitat. So how do I make that? How do I set that up? And it comes back, if I just say, I like killifish, well, then I'm going to make one type of aquarium for killifish. And it's just not going to work. I'm going to have to try to figure out later where I've gone wrong or the fish just dies on my tanks and I consume. Right. And, you know, I, I think that the killifish hobby has a reputation for being kind of weird because we are kind of focused on breeding our fish. Um, and why do you think that's the case with killies specifically? 
because if we don't breed them, they disappear from the hobby. And in some cases, they're disappearing from nature at the same time. Um, the commercial fish hobby hates Achilles. And the, the reason I believe is that um, if I'm breeding an and the really colorful, longer-lived ones, um, they'll give me, a couple will give me, say, four or five eggs a day. Right. The eggs take about 14 to 21 days to hatch. Um, so I hatch out, say, five days of young. Give me 20 fish. But when I used to breed cichlids, there were species that could give me a 1,000 babies in the same time. And the babies were all the same size. So you didn't have problems with feeding them. You just threw the feeding food in, they grew, and you had a thousand fish to sell. And you could take them all in at the same time. With killies, you have to build it up so slowly. You have to have, if you want to have a thousand killies in a week, uh, you're probably going to need 200 pairs and somebody working 60 hours a week on it. So they don't pay off. Right. And then, you know, the, unfortunately in English, the fact that we call them killies, I mean, kill. It sounds really brutal. It sounds really nasty. It also means small stream in Old Dutch. Okay. Uh, and if we called them small stream fish, people would think, oh, gentle little things. But we call them killifish, and people think, oh, my God, I'm going to put it in the tank. It's going to kill everything. It's going to eat all my guppies. Um, it's the opposite. Almost every killie I've kept has been totally inept in a community tank. They don't get to the food. They, they hide all the time. They get bullied all the time. Um, the Athiothemians that I keep, which is a Western African group, they don't swim incredibly well, and they're adapted to staying pretty close to the same area that they hatched in. Uh, you know, a tetra will take off up the river and can travel quite a long way and can be found a long way from where it hatched. Most killies will stay within a very, very narrow range, partly because if they do swim out, they get eaten, and partly because the only way that they survive is by colonizing really extreme habitats. Uh, they're small fish, and they get into areas where big fish can't go. But that creates a whole bunch of problems for us as fish keepers because anytime you get a creature from an extreme habitat, you have to adjust to that habitat. You have to recreate that extreme habitat. Yeah, I mean, if you get into annual killifish, for example, you can have a species. Um, and I don't like annual killifish, I'll confess right now. I'm just not an annual killifish guy. But you can have some of the species that are breeding at seven to eight weeks of age. The growth is that fast, and they're dead at three months. Uh, they're beautiful. And then, when you sorry to cut you off, but when you say those, uh, are you talking like nothos, for example, or yeah, like example? for example? Yeah, and um, you know, you would have a fish that hatches out when some fairly hard baked mud has been through a dry season. The eggs are surviving under the mud or under the crust of the mud and the damp dirt. Uh, it begins to rain, they begin to hatch out, and their entire life cycle in nature is until the insects get big enough to eat them. 
until the insects get big enough to eat the fish? Yeah, because uh, when I've spoken to people who collected these fish, they said, there are some nasty big things, insect larvae in that water. And it's way they're way bigger than the killies, and they're eating the killies. Wow. That's their food. But the killies are growing really fast and laying their eggs before they get eaten. And if they don't get eaten, the insects get to hatch out and fly away. The, uh, the nothobranchias are stuck in water holes that dry up, get smaller and smaller and smaller, and eventually vanish. Now, a lot of people who are very different from I am within the killie world really like keeping those fish. I personally like, I have two species of nothos. I really like keeping nothobranchias as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, you have to be a very well-organized person to keep them. <laughs> uh, my problem is that I would uh, forget to wet the eggs on time, uh, quite simply, you know, the, because part of the time you're keeping the fish, um, your fish are dead and they're eggs. And the eggs are not that interesting to look at. No, I have a, in my closet, I just have stacks and stacks of uh, plastic bags and little Tupperwares filled with uh moss and, and little eggs but the interesting thing is you don't have to wet them on time mm -hmm. um so i've tested i've played around with it a little bit and I've, i'm up to uh six months they've hatched six months past the due date so i'm gonna yeah. keep going and try to go a little bit further and see how long they can uh how long i can keep them uh, hatching. you'll probably find out that if you wait too long um the embryo if it does become active it'll consume its yolk sac and you'll get really sickly fish interesting i like uh what they call belly sliders yeah where they they just never can rise from the bottom they're not viable because they basically starved in the egg okay so you have to watch out for that you can't like there are limits on how far you can go with it oh interesting because they i see what you're saying so they they have only a certain amount of food in the um, area to consume and once yeah. done well, they'll go into what's called the diapause, which is they just stop developing. Okay. It's like uh, freezing in time. And then when conditions are better, they'll pick up their development and hatch. Um, but if you leave them in the diapause or diapause, say it as you will, uh, too long, uh, they don't seem to work very well. I've tried, well, I haven't tried experiments like that. I've simply forgotten to hatch the eggs. So <laughs> I've learned that and I, I tried to look up the reasons why and this is what I was hearing. I mean, I, I've had the same thing happen with some of the uh, larger South American annuals where, you know, these, these fish can have six to eight month incubations to start with. Mm -hmm. And I found them a year and a half later, you know, up in the warm spot where I was keeping them and thought, dang, better put that in water. And, you know, sometimes there are actually fry that hatch out, but they don't live long. They, so you haven't had anything successfully hatch and survive after uh, no. like a year of incubation or a year and a half of incubation? No, I mean, I think what you have to do, you know, there are a couple of species that have six months to eight month incubations. They're timed to how long you have between the rainy seasons where they come from and whether you have one or two rainy seasons and the whole weather cycle is what determines how long the eggs have to incubate for. But you sort of have to respect that time and you've got to figure that it's taken probably from before our species existed for this process to tune. And, 
you can play with it to a degree, but I think at a certain point you're setting yourself up for failure. Because then, you know, let, let's say, theoretically, I don't know whether this happens or not, but it's the kind of question that would occur to me. If I take the egg to an extreme limit, then I hatch it, um, will that affect the next generation? Um, right. Will there be changes in the parents that could affect fertility after? And see, you know, it's really easy to steer yourself into a dead end. And these are problems that you don't have with guppies. Or, or most other fish. Yeah. You know, and it's also an advantage because I've known people who timed out their annual so that each year they would have like three different species in the tank. Uh, uh, oh, so like it, okay. And okay. one would die off and, and they'd hatch out another while the eggs were incubating from the first and it, it to me it ends up as a really complicated way to keep fish but hey you know i guess there are people who really enjoy that and it gives them that option that's it's interesting because so you're saying like a, a, between every time sorry let me rephrase that question so by the time the eggs hatch the first species would have died and they put the second species into the tank yeah and just like that. trying to do that um you know, one of the neat things with uh, Nothobranchius is a lot of people have tried to keep them alive for longer periods because, you know, the, the death is based upon the habitat drying up and that's not going to happen in our houses. But they still die. They still time out. And they're being used extensively now, and this has only started in about the last 10 years, in aging research because they're looking at what are the genes that shut off or come on that cause the rapid aging at the end of the life cycle for these fish. And what can they tell us about the genetics behind aging? So some of them have become quite uh, popular research animals now. That's yeah. very interesting. I, so I actually have a pair of Nothobranchius that uh, are at least a year old okay they're definitely starting to look a little rough and like they're they're aging out but i need to go back and check how long the palm quisti i think they're pronounced um oh palm quisti okay yeah you're doing well keeping them at uh, what temperature do you keep them at i can tell you right now um <laughs> about they're at about yeah 75 74. okay so i mean yeah. you, you know there are fish that it probably gets warmer in their ponds you know, then savanna fish okay so the sun would hit the water full on and uh, that would shorten their lives as well right right because that yeah that'll speed up the metabolism so that's interesting i'd need to look up how long they they survive in the wild and see if i'm past that or if it's coming up soon or so what you do to do that is since nobody will really tell you um find out where they're from where they're caught and that's not hard to to find if you look them up Okay. And then check the weather reports over the year for that place. It'll tell you. Right. What, how long before the rain? Exactly. And it doesn't mean they can't live longer, given a chance. I mean, I had a, uh, a South American annual that was supposed to be dead in six months that lived for about 14 months and got twice as big as the book said it was going to get. I mean, it was beautiful fish. But what species was that? That was... Uh, 
I can't tell you the genus anymore because I know it's changed. Okay. And I don't keep annuals, but it was a white eye. Okay. Very common one. One of the beginner uh, South American annuals. But uh, I think it's Nematolibius or something like that now. Okay, I was going to ask if it was one of the Austrobilius or... No, it's not one of those. I mean, they're all related, interrelated. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, it was just a fish that lived a very long time in the conditions I gave it. But I had a pretty cold basement, and I kept okay. them in the basement. So they were in, uh, I would say, well, I think Celsius, so I'd say about 17. Oh, wow, okay. And in nature, they were probably a fish that lived at 24, 25. 25. Yeah. It, it did well. So I think I had sort of, a, it's like living in the fridge. You don't go bad as quickly, you know? So. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, 100%. I, yeah, I guess because you said South American or? Yeah, that was a South American species. Yeah. So if South. The, yeah, sorry. No, no, go ahead. One of the mistakes that people make when they uh, when they look at Achilles is they think it's tropical. And therefore, as a tropical species, it's got to be warm. Mm -hmm. um, almost all the Achilles I keep come from countries where for most of the year is 26 degrees Celsius. Doesn't you, vary a lot around the equator. And you're um, keeping species from the African? I, I keep West African species, West Central African species. Okay. And what people don't take into account is that we get warm from the sun and that famous rainforest canopy doesn't let sun through. Okay. So, a lot of the streams, especially the mountain streams, are coming from an elevation. The sun doesn't ever get through to them. They're just moving through darkness at all times. And that water can be, you know, I've had people tell me they've measured water at 18, 19 degrees Celsius, uh, close to the equator in Africa. Because if it's moving water, it'll be cooler. If it's coming down from an elevation, it'll be cooler. And if it never gets out into the sunshine, it'll be cooler. That's interesting. So it's African rainforest species specifically that you keep? That I keep, yes. And, you know, there's kind of cool stuff that you stumble across. Like I was reading an article on um, uh, global warming and the effect on Western Africa. And okay. I came across uh, a reference to a study with Achilles. And what they had discovered is one of the things that will happen is you'll have one species of Achilles in a certain part of a river, and then suddenly there's another species of Achilles that replaces it. And people have tried to understand why it is that the ones from sort of upriver don't just wash down and the two species don't coexist together. What's the barrier that keeps them apart? And what they discovered is that for a lot of these fish, they have stomach enzymes that are temperature activated. Interesting. So if um, a fish from Ottawa washes down to Montreal and we're two degrees warmer, um, on the, spot. the fry won't grow well because they don't have the right temperature for their digestive system. So the species that's there that's adapted to that temperature will do just fine and outcompete them. So starvation becomes the issue. That's what keeps them from replacing each other. But the warm water species, if it goes upriver where it's slightly cooler into the forest, 
Well, its digestive enzymes are going to slow it down. Now you can look at that and you can say, all right, this guy's a science nerd. We're talking about aquarium fish, etc. But that's kind of cool because if you have those species, you know, I keep reading about such and such a species is really nice, but it grows really slowly. And I read that article, I thought, maybe it doesn't grow slowly. Maybe it grows slowly at the temperatures we keep it at because it's having difficulty digesting and getting the energy to grow. And maybe if we look at what the fish actually needs, um, neat things can can happen in terms of our breeding them and raising them. You know, once we learn something. And do you think that these specific species um, are adapting to aquarium waters or handling different temperatures now? Or do you think that one of those slow growing species, if it was, if you were to measure uh, the original river or pond or whatever, you find that what we're keeping them in is not the temperature that they evolved in. So I think what's happening is that we're making all these broad human statements about Oh, pretty fish, but it grows really slowly or pretty fish and it grows really fast. And we're maybe not looking at the fact that pretty fish, but it grows pretty slowly at this temperature, but not at that temperature. But I mean, trying to figure all that out is an enormous amount of work, which is fun. (laughs) Again, the puzzles. And so are, are they all, are the West, you, you only keep non-annuals, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I've so are they all others in the past? I'm curious. I'll find out how it works. But at this stage, I don't think I'll ever become a, an annual keeper. An annual keeper. Yeah. Okay. And, and so is it because they're not annuals, they're coming from rivers or more consistent bodies of water, and then the annuals are coming from ponds that dry up? Is that kind of what? Yeah. I mean, uh, probably ponds? the most common. Um, division, and I'm going a bit out on the line here because I'm not like really well-educated on annuals. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. The difference is, are they rainforest where you've got water all year round? Okay. Or are they savanna? Okay. And for a savanna killifish, you've got uh, serious climate differences between the rainy season and the dry season. So if the fish is living in uh, Kenya, or one of the places where people would go on safaris, it's going to be annual. Those water holes don't last. But there's also going to be non-annual killies in there because you know there's got to be somewhere for the uh, crocodiles to lurk so they can eat you when you go down for the water. You know, right? There, there is permanent water. But if you're a killie and you're small and everything wants to eat you, what better way to survive than be, say, the only fish in your habitat? Yeah. You have no fish predators. You have insect predators and you've got birds. I mean, it's not like they've found the perfect safe place. They're not competing with another species. They've adapted to a really difficult environment, but they're not in competition with other fish that are going to beat them to the food, etc. Yeah, that's, that's even, very interesting. So, you know, you'll find uh, I've spoken to a lot of people who've collected killies both in uh, South America and in Africa. And one of the really common techniques is to ignore the water and start scooping up the leaves on the edge of the water. Oh yeah, and that's where they connect eggs or? They're often in there. 
Um, the, you know, you can have a centimeter of water with leaf litter. Well, what safer place to live than in a centimeter of water with leaf liver, liver, uh, litter? But then we look at it and we say, uh, that's, that's a rough habitat to be in. You know, you're in a tiny body of water and, um, wow. You know, really shallow water, little ponds, leftover things. Uh, but they're safer. But it, they're not exactly going to inspire you to live for 20 years either. Because they've got their own dangers. And, you know, the, the, most of the killifish we like in tanks, if they come from streams, they're going to be small, shallow streams, brooks, basically. And the fish are going to live um, under the vegetation that hangs from the bank. Right. That's going to be their cover. They're not going to wander out into the middle of the stream. Where all the big fish are. <laughs> where all the big fish are with the depth. Now, there are killie species that sort of fill the same role that tetras fill in South America, in Africa that do live out in the middle of the water, but they're all sort of silvery, torpedo, fast-moving ones. Right. A totally different body shape. And they've got that silver coloration that fish get when their camouflage is getting into the bright sunlight, where the sunlight's hitting the water. Uh, when you're looking at really silver fish, that's incredible camouflage. It's just like a shimmer from the sun. Yeah, you just become part of the shimmer as a living fish, and you just live and hunt out there pick off the bugs that fall in and life is good. Uh, meanwhile, there's all these really brightly colored ones that are living in uh, the leaf litter on the edge. And, right. You know, rivulets, which are, it's a whole family of South American non-annuals. Uh, they leave the water. They go hunting. Uh, like they, they jump. They, they, they jump out of the water. Like, I had a tank of rivulets one time, um, and it was way overcrowded because they were breeding like crazy. Okay. And somebody asked me if I could sell him uh, 40 or 50 of them. And I knew I had more than that in the tank. So, uh, But because rivulets are famous jumpers, I always kept the tank half filled. Okay. So I, I lifted the lid off, and I started going through. There were plants on the bottom, and there were no fish. I couldn't figure it out. And then I stepped back and I looked at the tank and every single fish was clinging to the silicone in the corners um, above the water. Above the water? Above the water. They left the water. They knew I was looking for fish in the water. They assumed I was some kind of predatory creature. And uh, so they went for the safest place they could find. They left the water and they were hanging on the silicone, just fish lining the silicone. It's one of the weirdest things I've seen. And then it you you like they probably just jump back in later or yeah I mean I got the lid on really quickly because I thought okay if that's a staging point for them to take another leap yeah. I'm gonna lose them all and you know and part of what I did to be honest is I held a net under them and then just sort of brought my finger down the silicone caught them all it was a lot easier than letting them get into the water but you know they're incredible uh, survivors like uh, there was a an aquarist that I knew, I'm gonna steal his story here. Um, he had some rivulets in a tank in a very old basement, very old house. And he, uh, he had a central um, 
filtration system with like piping plumbing in that and he had a leak and he wasn't exactly in a hurry to fix the leak because it was a really old house and he really didn't care so he always had this little standing pool on his floor underneath the tanks at the back and his rivulus had died he had no more of them except that about four or five years later i believe it was he finally moved that rack out and when he went to clean up the puddle it was full of rivulus that's crazy that they had actually jumped out that's how we lost them they'd found the puddle and they'd taken up a life living on whatever critters run around the basement of a guy who wow. mop up puddles on his floor. <laughs> stuff living in there and he, wow. he had a whole group of them you know that some of them can be unbelievably tough and then there, there's others that uh you know will die if you cough in the next room you know i fed fruit flies wingless fruit flies which are used in laboratories i fed them to killies and one thing that i like to do in my aquariums is i like to have them not completely full and have plants growing above the water right um emergent plants and also to have like house plants with their roots in the water because uh, i find that when the killies have shading above they don't jump as much they're a lot calmer and uh not nearly as nervous because I guess they're one of their big predators is birds and they haven't figured out that uh, birds can eat full of birds. You know, they figure they're living in our houses and they're going to get them eventually. They just haven't seen them yet. Yeah. But when I was feeding the wingless fruit flies, some of them climbed up on the plants. They were walking around on the leaves. The fish. No, no the fruit flies. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> when I started seeing the fish nailing these fruit flies from six inches above just by leaping and picking them off six inches six inches wow just like uh and absolutely accurate each time a fruit fly is not big yeah and you would see the fish kind of um it was really neat they would curl the back end of their body into a circle so that they kind of look like a cobra and then that curled bit became like a spring it would just fire them straight up in the air they just straightened out and just, and just grab their food so you know it, it's uh that's another reason why stores don't like killies because you leave the lid off they jump out yeah that's why everyone's always saying put lids on your yeah. killie tanks huh? if they're afraid if, if they're scared of anything most sensible way to escape is deep out and you know in, in nature it doesn't matter if you land on the land or not you can flip back into the water later right um just to do another jump back <laughs> yeah or two or three jumps back or yeah. you know, jump and end up in another pond right three feet away kind of thing but here they end up on the floor <laughs> and there they end up yeah they end up as the crispy killies yep yeah i've unfortunately already had that happen to me once and now everything is uh lit <laughs> yeah yeah thank you for tuning in to episode four of daffy's roundtable please stay tuned for part two next week where gary returns to continue the conversation on all things killifish i'm fadi Nadde from daffy's reptiles and we'll see you on the next one